Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business Growth Show, where we talk about all components of business and how to utilize them for exponential growth. My name is Nathan Cassiotis. I'm a serial entrepreneur, international speaker, results strategist, business coach, mentor, and consultant. Today, I have an awesome guest. He is an award-winning entrepreneur, executive, and investor. He is the founder and CEO of Thrive.com, that's T-H-R-V.com, the first and only jobs-to-be-done software for product, marketing, and sales teams. Using his three decades of innovation and investing experience, his customers include eBay, Twitter, American Express, Oracle, Target, and Viacom. He is a jobs-to-be-done innovation thought leader. He grew Thrive without any outside venture funding and continues to progress innovations in the jobs to be done space. Welcome, Jay Haynes, and thank you for being on my show. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having me. Awesome to have you here, mate. And um, I'm sure it's going to be an amazing show for everybody watching and listening today. So you're a very successful entrepreneur. So initially, for those people who don't know who you are, please introduce yourself by telling us a bit more about you and your journey. Sure. I started my career about 30 years ago actually working in finance, buying companies uh, in the 1990s. And this is where most private equity transactions back then were using debt and cost cutting. And I was always interested in innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, And one of the companies we bought was Steinway & Sons, which you may know as the kind of legendary piano company. And what was interesting about that for me from a career standpoint is Steinway is literally probably the least innovative company on the planet. They are selling the exact same product they invented 150 years ago, and that's part of their brand. They haven't changed how they make it or anything about the product. So that I always thought was very, very strange. And we created equity value by using debt and cost cutting and doing some acquisitions. But I was always interested in innovation. And then that's when I went back to business school. And I studied with Clay Christensen, who your listeners may know of, who was famous for disruption, but then really became a jobs to be done thinker, which we can talk about. Um, And then I worked for Microsoft as a product manager for a bit and thinking they had the secret sauce. This is back in the nineties when in the windows group, you know, Microsoft was just dominating the world. And I realized there was no real systematic scientific way to do innovation um, or product development. Uh, Even at Microsoft, the most successful company in the world at the time, and then I ran two Silicon Valley, you know, Sand Hill Road-backed startups with some great investors who had invested in legendary company. And I thought they would have all the secrets. And it turns out, you know, that's not really the way venture capital works. Um, and they didn't really have all the secrets. So there really wasn't anything kind of systematic that entrepreneurs and executives and companies and product teams could use. And I always thought that there should be something more systematic. And that's how I came to Jowsey Dunn and why I started Thrive about eight years ago. Yeah. Awesome. Amazing story there. I love that. And I just want to delve a little bit deeper because like I've done an MBA here in Australia, right? And, and majored in entrepreneurship and strategic management, but you completed your, your MBA with distinction at Harvard Business School, right? You know, which is a, a very prestigious school in the US and it's known globally, right? Like we know Harvard. And um, for those people who even watch TV, right? Like the law TV show Suits, it's mentioned a lot, you know, on there as, you know, um, the school that they want only hire their lawyers and stuff from. So I just want to initially start by just saying like, how was it? And, and what are the benefits, I guess, of going to Harvard to learn from there? 
Yeah, I think the biggest benefit for me was probably meeting Clay Christensen, who was a great thinker. And, um, you know, business schools do great work by helping students see a lot of cases. And you're trying to recognize patterns in what makes companies successful or what caused them to struggle. And ultimately, that can help your career. Um, and sometimes you need thinkers who are really pushing what is the current standard of doing things. Uh, and Clay, who unfortunately passed away recently, was one of those thinkers. He famously observed disruption as a phenomenon in business, which you know your listeners may be aware of. But then, you know, disruption kind of described a pattern. It described a problem. And so that was very interesting to think about. Um, but then it didn't really tell companies what to do about it. The, the basic idea behind disruption is that you're going to eventually overserve the market and a competitor will enter your market who has a product that's worse and then take market share and ultimately take over the market. Um, and he saw that in different industries. Uh, but what do you do about that? And what do you do about other competitive forces in the market? And how do you respond to them? And that's always what I thought was interesting about different innovations that are successful. They're responding to the situation in the market and market growth opportunities. So how do you know, if you're an entrepreneur, for example, how do you know before you spend you know, potentially millions of dollars in developing your product uh, that it's actually going to be successful? And that's where Jobsy Dunn came in. And so I think the, the benefit of the business school for me was really meeting Clay and following his work and, you know, understanding what he was thinking about. Um, and the, the good news is you don't have to go get an MBA. You can just read his books. And, you know, we all live in the world of the internet now, so you can watch videos and find this stuff online and probably save some money in going to get an MBA. <laughs> um, so, but but I really do think, you know, thinking differently about the types of problems that entrepreneurs and businesses are trying to solve is really important. Yeah, I love that. Amazing answer there. And I'm sure, and that's the biggest one, I think in general about people, right, is that like who you spend time with is who you become and who you connect, get connected to, right, in, in business. And, um, you know, this is where, you know, the face, there's that analogy about face-to-face, -face, you know, MBAs and maybe the online MBAs where you don't get to really meet people, right, um, with these online MBAs, stuff like that. So, you know, that one person has changed your whole career and the trajectory of your life and business, right? Like, it's amazing. Um, and, and you only get there by putting yourself in those situations. So awesome that you, you took that on, um, you know, sunk your teeth into it, so to speak, and, um, you know, created that journey and, and asked more questions, um, which I love about that. And, and, you know, we started talking about, um, you know, jobs to be done, right. Or, or JTBD as the acronym, um, is so do you want to maybe just, yeah, in a general sense, talk about like, what is jobs to be done innovation? Yeah. And the basic idea is actually deceptively simple. It's that customers are actually not buying your products, which is very hard to understand, especially if you're an entrepreneur, right? You know, I've got this product, I'm selling it. Why aren't people buying it? What they're really doing underneath the, the transaction of purchasing is they're trying to get a job done. So Clay said this very nicely. He said, customers are not buying your products, they're hiring it to get a job done. So that's a really simple idea. And basically the way you can think about it is a job that you need to get done is a goal you're trying to achieve. And that goal is independent of any solutions. So for example, if you're a parent, you need to get a baby to sleep through the night. <laughs> I have four kids, so I had to get that job done a lot. 
Um, if you're a cardiovascular surgeon, you need to restore artery blood flow. If you're a consumer, you need to get to destinations on time. If you're analyzing the music market, you need as a consumer to uh, create a mood with music. All of those statements are what now would be considered a job to be done. They're a customer goal. They're independent of any solution. And that's where the real power of jobs to be done comes in because that customer job, that goal is not going to change over time. It's totally stable. So entrepreneurs and companies and product teams often like to chase the latest technology or fad. So the obvious example today would be things like machine learning or AI or Bitcoin or blockchain or whatever it is. And the problem with chasing those kind of technologies or products or solutions is you have to figure out what they're useful for. <laughs> and that's what jobs to be done um, is really powerful at. Because if you look at any job, it's generally got between you know any 10 to 20 different steps and probably 100 different customer needs. And now you really have a great way to articulate and measure your customer's problem that you're trying to help them to solve. And uh, Theodore Levitt, who was also a Harvard Business School professor back in the 1960s, put it very succinctly. He said, customers don't want a quarter-inch drill. They want a quarter-inch hole. <laughs> and you may have heard that before. But that succinctly summarizes it you know, very nicely because they don't want your product. They want to achieve a goal. Your product and solution will change over time. Absolutely. We know that's with certainty. Um, but what's not going to change is your customer's goal. So if you focus on your customer's goal, on the job they're trying to get done, that leads to all sorts of things that you can do that are going to increase the probability that your innovation and your product roadmap is going to lead to success, revenue, and profitability growth. Yeah, I love that. Amazing section there. And, um, and I think you know what a lot of entrepreneurs from what I see is they think, oh, I have to create this product, right? And, and get something out there into the market, but they don't test it enough. They don't ask what the customer's needs are enough, right? In that initial phase, which is like the most important part because so many people create products out there and they're not really that needed or, you know, they're not what people use, right? So, you know, that that's where you can get a lot of challenges and issues, right? And the thing is, you know, not enough testing um, and, and asking the right questions at that, you know, initial phase. So, um, love that you know that's the way it's framed and 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 how you're breaking that down that that's really powerful um and then you know if, if we're going a little bit deeper now so you know you you've got this sort of whole framework about how you do it so in that in the way of doing things in the in the jobs to be done world how is that valuable for for you know for companies to use this and product teams as well yeah so before i get to you know how is it valuable for companies and product teams uh, let me also say on that uh, idea about your products uh, or an entrepreneur's products, I definitely agree with that. And sometimes we like to joke that our competitive advantage is we have no ideas. <laughs> and the point we're trying to make there is don't fall in love with your product or your ideas because your customers don't care about them. What they care about is that you help them solve their problems. So before you even have any ideas, really, really understand your customers' problems um, and this is true. If you go back and look at the history of business failures, they're all because they didn't understand the customer's problem. Um, you know, you can think of the Microsoft Zune. I, I assume you didn't own a Zune, right? Because it was a hugely uh, unsuccessful product. Um, and it was trying to compete with the iPod. 
And Microsoft just thought with all of its resources, they can invest a ton of money and they would take share from this $30 billion market for iPods that Apple had helped pioneer. And of course, it was a huge failure because no one wants iPods. You know, they don't want records or cassettes. I'm old enough, I own eight track tapes, right? No one wants any of those products. What they want is to create a mood with music. So right when the Zune launched, it was a huge failure. Uh, but another product called Pandora, which didn't have a hardware device at all, it was just streaming, was growing at 90,000 users a day because it helped get the job done faster and more accurately. So to your question about how is this valuable for companies, you can think a, a company is essentially an investment vehicle. It's taking its capital that it generates either from its profits or if it's still unprofitable from its venture investors, and it's investing that capital in a product roadmap. And that product roadmap determines your success. Everything about your success is in your product roadmap. And you're investing that capital to build features that people supposedly want. And if you build the wrong features, you're on a roadmap that looks like BlackBerry, where, and people forget this, BlackBerry, when the iPhone launched, had a market cap that was four times bigger than Apple. And now BlackBerry's effectively worth zero. They lost 50 billion in market cap. And Apple is, of course, a $2 trillion company. So they had the wrong product roadmap. They were making the wrong investment decisions. Now, what's interesting about that story is um, when Android was in development, once the iPhone launched, the entire Android team said, we have to change the Android entirely. We have to make a new phone. Uh, and this came out because of lawsuits. So we, we know the emails and documents that we're sending back and forth. And they were like, we have to radically change our product because of the iPhone. So they saw that. Um, and this is what Java Studio helps you do. So if you're in a market and you have a big competitor like Apple that launches the iPhone, uh, can you tell that your investment in your product roadmap is going to lead to success or is it going to lead to failure? So companies don't even recognize, but they have an enormous amount of risk in their product roadmap because does your roadmap look like a BlackBerry or iPhone, right? That's a question that every executive should be able to answer with high confidence. And that's what Jobs We Done really, really helps companies do because we can get into the details but enables you to understand the job very detailed and with metrics. And you can segment customers, you can do competitive analysis, you can do market sizing and segment sizing, all to understand, are you on the right path? Is your roadmap going to lead you to success? Yeah, very powerful. I love that. And um, so important, you know, the reason, like you said, roadmap and, and planning, right, in business, um, because if you don't know that, and a lot of people you know, they may have some sort of plan, but is it concise enough? Is it giving you the right metrics, right? It's not just having a plan. Yes, having a plan is great. That's a good start. But are you, you know, pulling the right levers and asking the right questions, so to speak, to, you know, ensure that you're moving forward in the right direction um, that's going to, you know, help the company grow and, and really create something that's really needed um, in the world as well. So I, I love that. And, um, you know, from... You know, you, you touched on executives right there that all executives should know this. So, you know, when you're working in a bigger type business, right, where you've got a lot of different functions and, and things like that, um, how, how does it work with, with executives to know this and, and, and working around that in the business? Yeah, it, it somewhat depends on how big the company is. So you might have one product that's successful and you've got a product roadmap for that product. That's um, a little bit easier because that product 
is being hired by your customers to get a job done. So you need to understand that job in detail and all your competitors and where the threats come from and where the opportunities are. And Jobs to be Done helps map that out um, because it'll tell you these are the underserved parts of the job and these are the overserved ones. Um, and then you can analyze your roadmap and say, why are we investing all this stuff in pe- this stuff that people don't care about? You're exactly right. Um, and so we should change our strategy to invest in the things that they really do struggle with and they're willing to pay for. Um, So if you've got a bigger portfolio, then you essentially have a product portfolio question, which is uh, you might have multiple roadmaps. And in that case, you you might have multiple products, but they're still getting jobs done. And the, the real underlying risk comes from, is your roadmap going to hit your revenue goals? Especially if you're a public company, or even if you're a private company, you have investors, you have to report you know, quarterly numbers. And is that roadmap you're investing in likely to turn into revenue growth, or is it going to lead to failure? And that's the ultimate question. So one way you can think about jobs done is it's basically a risk mitigation system. It's minimizing the risk that your investment in your product roadmap doesn't turn into revenue and profitability growth. And at the end of the day, companies are pretty simple. They exist to grow revenue and profitability. Um, so that really is the underlying mission. And you know, we always say entrepreneurs are incorrectly characterized as risk takers. And you, know, you want to be a swashbuckling kind of risk taker out there. That is really untrue if you look at successful entrepreneurs. The best entrepreneurs in the world are risk mitigators. No one wants to take risk. That's just insane. Um, you know, you don't want to play Russian roulette. You want to figure out a way to not point the gun at your head at all. And if you're investing your investors' money, you've basically got a gun pointed at your head. And that's one of the reasons, you know, when we started Thrive, we did it with um, our internal capital by generating revenue and profitability. So we don't have outside investors pointing at a gun at our head. <laughs> Yeah, love that. That's uh, that's really powerful. And and like you said, it's it's important to understand what decisions you're going to make, right, in those areas there, and and, and how it all all comes together. Um, so, like, we've got people that you know, and I like the risk, you know, mitigation type thing because that that's business in general, right? And and as you, you know, there's like a risk muscle as well, right? That we can, you know, we build that up over time. And, you know, you're not just going to obviously put all, you know, go all in, um, you know, at any point in your time, you've got to work out where to, where to put your efforts and, and what's a, a perceivable um, lower risk, uh, but still has gain in it. Now, when, when we're working this, um, you know, within the business, because I think you can, there's a lot of, you know, from what I'm sort of unpacking, right, is there can be a lot of levels to jobs to be done as well, right? Because you've got like the actual core thing that you're doing, that you're delivering, right? But then even like within a business and things like that, right? Like, you know, when you're working in teams and things like that, there's there's still sort of, I don't know, jobs to be done to an extent of, of you know, how you're working with each other um, and then how that sort of goes into the, the grand scheme of things. Um, just me sort of, putting it all together now. So how does it work from an, an internal sense? And, and is there ways to sort of leverage that type of thinking um, within a business as well? Yeah, that's great. And we we do this a lot pretty frequently too, where you've got two views of jobs you done. One is the external customer view, which is what is your customer's job? And that's actually a key point, which is 
your growth is really going to come from helping your customer get their job done better, um, right? So that's actually the key market that you're targeting as a company. But companies, especially bigger companies too, their employees have to get jobs done, <laughs> whether it's you know optimizing cash flow, satisfying customer needs, uh, generating leads, acquiring customers. Those are all jobs to be done. And you can think about it this way, which is that's why the B2B world exists, because companies that sell to other companies are helping those companies get their jobs done. Um, you know, Salesforce is an obvious example. The job of a CRM system is to help companies acquire customers. Um, and, you know, you used to do that with an enterprise system that was on-premise that would take years to install and a huge amount of consultants. And then, you know, Salesforce changed the game by making it just a SaaS application that anybody can log into. So in that case, that is an internal job for companies. And they're, they're also internal operational jobs. You know, the procurement jobs, their compliance jobs, companies exist, you know, they're very, very complicated organisms and they have a lot of jobs to get done too. So the method, the beauty of the method is it's the same method. It doesn't matter if you're a parent or if you're a CFO or a cardiovascular surgeon or, a, you know, aircraft maintenance director, all, all the underlying jobs have the same structure uh, where they have steps and needs and you can do the same type of analysis. Yeah, I love that. Really powerful um, distinction, right? To, to, I guess, include that frame, I think is a good way of putting it right on the way of thinking. I think that's the biggest way. And like you were mentioning about your MBA before and the way that you do now with jobs to be done is it's all about how to think differently, how to put a certain frame on something so that you get a better outcome for it, right? So um, I really love that. And you know- yeah, and those outcomes, uh, that that's a great point is that you are looking for results for your customers. So what are those results? It's such an interesting question. And the, the way to think about it with Jobs to Done is your value as an entrepreneur, as a product manager, as head of product, as a CEO uh, at a big company, whatever it is, your, your value to your customer is helping them get their job done faster and more accurately. That's it. The beauty of this is it's pretty simple. They're going to pay you either to cut costs. Of course, if you have a lower cost product, it's the same as everybody else. You know, without any other distinction, they'll buy your lower cost product because no one wants to pay more for something that's the same. And that's like true in commodity markets. Um, so you can compete on costs or you can compete by helping your customers get their job done faster and more accurately. And this is the real power of Jobs you Done is that everything in a job can be measured for speed and accuracy. How quickly and how accurately does your product help your customers get their job done? And even Jeff Bezos has talked about this. He said, you know, his customers are delightfully dissatisfied. And what he means by that is he's always going to try and have Amazon get something to you faster, right? He, he was like, oh, I can do it in one day. Okay. How about on the same day? How about if I build a fleet of drones and I can get you the product in one hour, right? I, they, they're never ending quest to make everything almost instantaneous and automatic. Yeah. Awesome points there. You're right. And um, yeah, Amazon's definitely changing the game in, in speed there of um, doing it. And I think, uh, you know, what I'm predicting in the future is that there's going to be drones everywhere. It's going to be delivering stuff. Like you pick something and then you won't even need people to to come take it to you. Um, It's just going to rock up at your, at your place of residence, um, which would be very interesting. Um, And um, yeah, the delivery world um, that we're getting into now, right. Um, Because 
time is precious to us um, and, and how can we, we get things quicker? So I, I love that um, element there. So um, now this can, you know, you, we're working things in like how to look at it for external customers. We're talking about obviously within businesses to look at stuff. Now, obviously you have a business like this or, you know, there, there might be people out there, you know, you got thrive.com um, that want to have a product career. Let's talk about, right. You know, where they want to yeah, yeah. sort of get into that space. Um, and, and so how, how can that help them, you know, jobs to be done to really, um, yeah, for, for that method. Yeah, it's, it, I, I think it really can help people uh, with their careers um, because mostly, especially if you're in the product world or entrepreneurship, you want to be part of a successful product team and a successful product launch. Um, when I was at Microsoft, uh, if you were on a team that launched a product, you got a, a nice plaque with Bill Gates saying, you know, congratulations, you were on this product launch. It was like really, it really did help advance your career. If you had a bunch of these, you know, plaques in your office, you're sitting there successfully launching products. Um, and you don't want to successfully launch them. You also want the products themselves to be successful. So um, it really can help you in your career speak the language of your customer. And that's really, really important to any company. If you're helping them identify market opportunities, do competitive analysis, do product roadmap planning, doing idea generation, doing messaging, positioning, segmentation, all the core elements of value creation, you know, the things that drive value creation at a company. If you learn these jobs to be non-techniques, you can learn other techniques too. Um, I just think what, what you'll see is that this is a very, very valuable way for anybody looking to advance their career uh, to learn how to empathize with customers. And those entrepreneurs, those product teams, marketing teams, sales teams, when you empathize with your customer's struggle and you really can identify with them, you will be on the path to a successful career. And if you look at successful entrepreneurs, that, that's really the key too, is they basically were a customer and they got so frustrated, they went off and started a company because the problem was like causing them to pound their head against the table. Um, or they were related to the market in some way that made them very empathetic to what was happening to customers. And that's what Jobs have Done does. It, it's, it's a way of systematizing and making a repeatable process out of customer empathy. Yeah, I love that. So powerful. And, um, and one extra little bit that I'll add to that, right, is that I love how you were talking about how it relates to people and working in it, that you don't necessarily have to be the entrepreneur, the one that starts the business, right? Because it's a way of thinking. You can be the intrapreneur, as they call it, right? Where you have this type of knowledge and way of thinking, and you can make a difference being in the product team or being in the company, you know, you don't have to necessarily found it, but have that impact, you know, and be able to make those decisions. So, um, you know, depending on where you're at, um, you know, there's a lot of different uses for it. So, um, yeah, really love how you unpack that there. Um, and what, what's really powerful about you is that you started your business without any um, venture capital, right? Like any, any capital that, yeah. that's come in um, and you've been going for, you know, um, eight years or whatever it is now. So you've obviously done well to grow, right, um, in that time. So let, let's talk about if entrepreneurs, right, um, you, know, of, you know, they need capital, right, for their business, so to speak. Like, you know, to some extent, you need more capital, more money to grow, right? Now, the question is, is can they do that themselves? Or, or you know, if they're thinking about, you know, maybe getting some investment from, um, you know, private equity, angel investing, venture capital type path, um, 
I'd just like to hear your thoughts because obviously, you know, there's different reasons why about what, what, what should they think about like before they make the decision, I guess, of, you know, whether to go down that path or not. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, in some cases it's useful to go raise venture capital. And if you can do it successfully, that's wonderful. Um, I've been through an, enough economic cycles now. <laughs> you know, I, I, when I graduated college in 1990s, early 90s, you know, it was the SNL crisis in, in the US. And then we hit the dot-com bust. Uh, then we had 9-11. Then we had the 2008 crisis. And now we have a global pandemic. So if there are any entrepreneurs out there, I can guarantee you one thing, there will be another financial crisis. <laughs> and the capital markets go up and down and they can shut down. So if you're, if you're running your business on venture capital and you're just like, we got to get to the next round, we got to get to the next round, there's huge risk in that because you might be looking to raise money when the capital markets shut down. Now, we've had pretty good capital markets for a while, but, uh, but that won't go on forever. So the, the other element of it is that I think it's really, really good discipline for entrepreneurs to be able to sell something to their customers. Um, and if you're, even if you're in a consumer market and you're selling to parents, for example, there are ways to go work with companies that are big companies selling to parents to learn something and to sell something to those companies and then use that as a way to build your, your product out. Now, if you're in the B2B world, you can sell services to those companies um, because one, they buy services a lot. And two, they don't care about your product. They care about that you're solving their problem. So go prove that you can solve some business's problem. It doesn't matter if you have the greatest widget or the latest app or you know 17 features instead of 16 features in your product. Those are not the things that are going to drive value. It's going to drive value because you're getting your customer's job done and your customers will hire you to do that. In this case, they literally will, hire, they will pay you money <laughs> to go do it. Um, and that's the way we always thought about it. We ultimately, you know, we think of ourselves as a software company. We're building software and, you know, for product and marketing and sales teams and enterprises. But most importantly, we're trying to help them solve their problems. So when we look at our growth and we say, okay, should we raise venture capital? We could go try and raise venture capital. Or why don't we go raise money from customers? Why don't we go sell something to customers? Because if you're in a venture capital meeting, you're in a sales meeting. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, a venture capital meeting is a sales meeting. You are just selling permanent capital in your company, which is going to dilute you as an entrepreneur. So if you start out trying to get to a hurdle of X, as soon as you raise money, you have to, your hurdle now is X plus Y for the exact same return. So you have to really think about those things before you decide, I want to get married to a venture capitalist because it is a marriage. You, you cannot, you know, there's no redemption right on venture capital. They own that stock until they decide to get divorced. Love that. Yes. And a really great distinction on, you know, I always say, you know, this to myself and, and my clients is like, if you need more money for something to grow or whatever it is, just go and sell more, right? Help more yeah. customers, right? Like yeah. that's the very simple sense. It's, um, yeah, you know, um, and it's the best type of of uh, capital because it's non dilutive. It's actually profitable. <laughs> so, so go get the profitable capital instead of the dilutive capital.
That's right. Now, obviously, there are exceptions if you're building big, you know, tech products or something like that, that may need a lot, but they're more the, I guess, sort of unicorn type style businesses where um, they're going all the way to IPO that may need a lot of capital. Um, but yeah, I, I like the way that you're saying it as well is, you know, we can do a lot of it ourselves um, in that way. Um, yeah. And it's almost a cliche. The time to raise capital is when you don't need it. Right. Um and, and that does make sense because if you've really solved the problem for your customers and you are just in the mode of scaling, your product's working, it's doing great, you just need more capital to acquire more customers faster, that's great. Go raise venture capital and you know scale your business. But most early stage entrepreneurs haven't still really figured out the problem they're solving and how to solve it. They're kind of throwing things at the wall. Fail fast, you know, you've probably, of course, I think your listeners have heard of fail fast. That is an incredibly bad process. Like, I do not recommend that to anybody. The goal is to not fail at all. <laughs> and unfortunately, some of this fail fast came because there is a difference between a venture capitalist and an entrepreneur. Venture capitalist has 20 companies in the portfolio, or if they have multiple funds, they have you know 40 or 60. So they just want to throw things at the wall and see what stick. But you as an entrepreneur have one company. Your company has to succeed. If, if, uh, if you're a venture capitalist and you have 20 companies and one of them is Google, you don't really care about the other 19 because you've made so much money on one of your investments that it just makes up for all the other losses. But you don't have that option as an entrepreneur. Your company has to succeed. So try not to fail at all. Don't fail fast. I love that. What an awesome distinction there. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure the, the jobs to be done way of thinking, right, um, will ensure to put you on the right path that you're actually creating something that's really needed, right, in the market. So it won't fail. You, you're actually getting the right information. And you just got to make sure that you and your team obviously deliver um, on, on those promises on, on what, you, you know, you're going to help them with. I love that. And a lot of stuff, you know, gets talked about always about businesses, about competitors, right? Um, so, um, and I know that, you know, jobs to be done, you know, you talk about like exploiting competitor weaknesses from the view of the customer. So I'd, I'd like you to unpack that a little bit more as well for us. Yeah, great. Um, and this, this is, I do love this part of jobs to be done because part of my uh, job at Microsoft when I was in the Windows group was to analyze competitors. And the way we did it back in the late 90s, this was actually when Windows still came in a box. I'm showing my age. Uh, believe it or not, software came in a box. And in the back of the box, you would have this bullet list and you would have uh, our product and you would have your competitors' products. And if you had more features, you were better than your competitors, right? This was the standard competitive analysis. And companies still do this today. They're like, we have to catch up. We don't have those features. We need to throw that feature into our product. So why is that generally not a good thing to do? Well, again, your customers do not want your features. <laughs> they want no features. They want your product to get the job done for them. And Pandora is a great example of this, right? My, the Microsoft Zune, it had tons of features. It even ironically had a podcasting feature, right? It worked well, had a lot of features, had more features than the iPod, but it failed. Pandora had no features because all you did was type in, you know, Miles Davis or Indigo Girls or whoever you liked. And you had a playlist automatically created for you. So its features were the intelligence of music playlist creation. But from a consumer standpoint, it was just like push a button and, you know, you're done. 
So the way to do this type of competitive analysis is not to compare features to features. That's the traditional way to do it. And it doesn't really work. What you want to do is look at your customer's job and you want to figure out where they're struggling. So um, we use this example, you know, people can see our analysis of this, but if you were looking at Apple and Google Maps and you were saying, okay, how are we going to beat Apple and Google Maps? Now, first of all, if you went to a venture investor and said, we're going to try and beat Apple and Google Maps, they would think you were insane because of course they have about a hundred percent market share. They're $2 trillion companies. They have hundreds of billions of dollar cash. They have a huge distribution system. They have customers. They will crush you if you try uh, to compete with Apple and Google Maps. But if you look at from the standpoint of the customer's job, you can identify weaknesses in even Apple and Google. Um, and we show this analysis. And the way you do it is you, you don't think about their products initially. That's the key. Again, have no ideas. Just figure out what the problem you're trying to solve is. And in this case, people are hiring Apple and Google Maps to get to destinations on time, of course. That's the job. And that job is very, very complex. It has about 16 steps. There's about 106 different needs. And one of the steps in that job is to plan the stops. So if you got a busy day, you know, Ethan, I know you're a busy guy. You've, you know, pre-pandemic, right? <laughs> you would be out and about, you know, meeting with customers and investors and partners, whoever. So you might, you might uh, be in a new location where you don't know uh, where you're supposed to go, and you have to optimize your sequence of stops because you get five meetings in a new city. It's very busy, and are you going to be on time to these meetings, right? So optimizing your sequence of stops in that case is very, very important need in the job of getting to a destination on time. And if you looked at how you would do that by hiring Apple and Google Maps, it's incredibly manual. And it's actually called the traveling salesman problem, right? You need to figure out, should you go to point A, uh, meeting A to B, and then to C, or A to C to B first, and then you know any possible combination of stops. And that is an unmet need for a huge segment of customers in that market. And Apple and Google Maps are terrible at it because it's so manual. So that's a competitive weakness. So you can use the customer, your customer's job and these metrics related to speed and accuracy to identify weaknesses in even the most successful companies in the world like Apple and Google. Mm, yeah, really powerful. I love that. Um, great example. Um, and, and you can just imagine, you know, if you're not going up against Apple or Google, but you're going up just your general competitors that there's likely going to be a lot more holes right there yep. that you can exploit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, one of the competitors in, in so many markets that we look at is manual processes. Those still exist, you know, whether it's parents trying to get a baby to sleep tonight or whether it's cardiovascular surgeons or CFOs or whoever it is, a lot of what's still done to get jobs done in the world are manual human processes. And those are generally slow and inaccurate. And that's where you can really help your customers. Yeah, so true. Love that. Um, and, you know, I guess if we sort of flip the coin a little bit, right, where, you know, we're finding these things that we can exploit, um, you know, we want to we wanna get more of a demand so to speak you know in what we're doing right in, in our what we're, what we're selling and stuff like that so you know what can you share to people to, to get more demand so they can really you know help their business to grow as well yeah that's a great question so the first step is to figure out where the customers struggled that's that is number one which is just really understanding where your customers struggle now in many markets also you want to segment your customers uh, just like getting to a destination on time. There's a huge number of customers in that market who don't struggle to get to destinations on time because they 
go to, they have a commute. They go to the same place all the time. They pick up their kids and they go to errands. They, they don't struggle at all. But the set, there is a segment that's really, really struggling. And that's the most important thing because everything downstream from that comes from understanding that struggle. So if you're creating messaging that you're going to use for advertising and marketing, you want to message to the fact that you help your customers overcome their struggle. And if your sales team is meeting with customers, you want to understand those customers' struggles so that instead of selling your product to them, you're empathizing them with initially. And when they tell you what their struggles are, you're saying, I'm going to help you with those struggles. And that's when you, this is why you can see people don't care about machine learning or AI or blockchain. Those are, those are just solutions and they may be useful to helping solve my problem, but don't sell me machine learning and AI. You're not going to generate demand by saying we have the latest machine learning. We work with a lot of B2B companies and they love talking about machine learning, right? Oh, our algorithms are so sophisticated. I don't care about your algorithms. What do those algorithms do for me? Do they make my life any better? Do they help me get jobs done, right? And so if you're going to generate demand, you want to look for those people, and this is a cliche, but it's useful, uh, that have a headache, right? They don't want, don't, you don't want to sell vitamins, you want to sell painkillers. And so the people who are most, most likely to convert into your customers are those people who are, I have identified, I have a headache, I'm pounding my head against the table, I cannot take it anymore, I'm willing to buy your product because it's going to solve this headache I have. And that's what you're really looking for. And that's what Jobs Be Done helps you do. Yeah, I love that. Really powerful. Um, and, you know, what always right in business is that it's never just a straight road up, right? There's always, you know, peaks and troughs in business and like that. And obviously, you know, you are you have got to the stage, you know, you've been going for longer than eight years with your business and most businesses don't last 10 years, right? So obviously you're doing something right and you've worked a lot of big companies beforehand. But I think it's it's good for people to know that are in early stage of their business where they're having struggles about, I don't know if you want to maybe share about one of your biggest business failures or something like that and how you overcame it um, to, you know, put that into context as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'll actually tell you a story about another company that I was running. Um, I didn't start it, but I was brought in by the venture investors. This is after the dot-com bust. So I was raising capital for this business literally right when 9-11 happened. Um, and you may remember that that time, but um, I would say unironically to people, I was like, no, this internet thing is going to be big. <laughs> like, oh, that dot-com thing, that came and went. Um, and, and then, of course, everybody was like, it's about terrorism now. Why are you raising you know, venture capital? That's an example where the markets had really, really the capital markets had really shut down. Um, and what we did at that company is we recognized, okay, there's going to be this huge transformation because the price of... Um, uh, price per gigabit of transmitting data over the internet is just plummeting. That was back when it was, you know, $30 a gigabyte. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's plummeted to, to such low cost that you and I are sitting here in different countries having this streaming, this conversation that was not possible in 2000 and 2001. Um, and the, the failure we had was we built a device. It's almost like we, we had the same Zoom failure which was we thought, okay, well, then people are going to hook up this internet thing and have um, video over the internet and they're going to want to put it on a device. And, you know, we had some success with that, but we didn't really understand what people were going to do with this device. 
Now, simultaneously, in parallel with what we're doing, this small company started up called YouTube. And obviously, one of them was very successful. The other was not as successful. And so that was really what I would say is a failure of understanding what the customers were going to do with our product. And that's one of the reasons you know I came to Jobs and Done is because of those failures and thinking, okay, we didn't really understand the customer enough. What were people going to do with this thing? And that's why I think no matter what failures you confront as an entrepreneur and even as a big company, there's so many things you have to get right to be successful. But if you put your customers front and center, they will lead you to success. The customer really is the most important person in the entire business successful success equation. So no matter what you're confronting, whether it's, you know, you're running out of cash, whether it's not, you need to get rid of your marketing person, all those things um, really pale in comparison to failing for your customers. So if you can succeed for your customers, all the other stuff will be noise and you'll, you will be on the path to success. Yeah, I love that. Great example there of, um, yeah, the different challenges that we face and what to focus on. Um, and yeah, just to maybe um, get, get to wrapping this up now, I'll, I'll leave it up to you of what, whatever you want to sort of share is, yeah, what, what one key piece of advice, what, what final thing, words of wisdom would you like to share with uh, everybody watching and listening today? Yeah, great. Um, I, I think if I, if I share one piece of wisdom for fellow entrepreneurs out there, um, the, it, it would be very, very simple. Do not run out of cash. <laughs> one of my favorite business school professors who wasn't Clay Christensen used to say, uh, all businesses fail for the exact same reason. And it's because they run out of cash. <laughs> That's it. And so if you're in this mindset, um, that we really need to keep the business going by staying profitable way earlier than you would expect, that leads you to success. Because if you can keep generating cash and profitability, even if you want to eventually go raise venture capital, but if you have this mindset that cash is king and you really need to generate cash, not from investors, but from your customers, that will lead you to success. And actually, that's, that's, that can be useful advice for big companies too, obviously, because they go out of money. You know, Kodak, which was a huge brand when I was a kid, you know, went out of business, went bankrupt um, because they weren't focused on their customers, right? And so that even that is a good way to you know, think about investments and product roadmap is make sure you're making those investments widely because if you end up making bad investments in roadmap, it will drain your cash and your company will go out of business. So- uh, that would be that would be my final piece of advice. <laughs> Love it, so true. Cash flow is everything. Keep that cash going, everyone. Love that. So, yeah, we we connected through our network. So I learned about your awesome journey from working with many big companies, you know, founding multiple businesses and and various types of investing. Uh, your jobs to be done methodology changes the way we think about our customers, you know, in a positive way to allow us to get better results. Um, you know, your customers are some of the biggest in the world, um, you know, so you know how to make a big impact that delivers client outcomes. Uh, you know, you're an awesome guy as well. And I'm sure you continue to grow and change the business world for the good. And, you know, I'm very grateful that we, we connected and I look forward to working with you in the future as well. So how can people uh, find you getting in contact with you, Jay? Yeah, thanks. It's great being here, and uh, right back at you. It's great to great to chat. Um, 
So it's pretty easy. You can find us at thrv.com. That's thrive without the vowels. Uh, and you can find me directly. I'm pretty, uh, pretty findable on LinkedIn and Jay Haynes, J-A-Y-H-A-Y-N-E-S. Awesome. Yeah, definitely check out thrive.com without the vowels. Um, awesome stuff there on uh, the jobs to be done and everything else that Jay does. So yeah, thank you everyone for watching, listening to this show where we talk about everything on business growth. Please like, subscribe and leave us a five-star review. You can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram and YouTube as Ethan Cassiotis or visit my website, ethancassiotis.com. I completely agree with you. Or do I? The only way you know is if you tune in next time. So until next time, remember that our business grows when we learn skills and take action using them in spite of fear. Have a great day.